It's the Garden Nerd Tip of the Week podcast, where we spend time chatting with expert gardening guests, and we ask for their favorite tip. I'm Christy Wilhelmy. Thanks for joining me. This week, we're talking with Manju Kumar of Sarvodaya Institute. She is the mother of one of our previous guests, Rishi Kumar, and she runs the nursery and farm at Sarvodaya Institute. She focuses on demonstrating models of how to live more sustainably through the Institute, and she is also a zero-waste farmer. On top of that, she also manufactures the world's first and only plant-based toothbrush with her company, Brush with Bamboo. Thanks so much for joining me, Manju. Thanks so much for having me, Christy. And it was such a pleasure to have you see the farm and come and pick up some bananas. Yeah, I was recently there. And it's funny because it's something that I have always wanted to see because you and I know each other from the Heirloom Expo, which is that that thing where, you know, we go up to 500 miles away from here and then we see each other, but we both live in Los Angeles. So it's kind of weird. But the, the farm is such an extraordinary place. I would love it if you could describe what it looks like for our listeners. Well, the farm was originally um, uh, a model that we wanted to create. We wanted to see how if agriculture could be done in a, in a more ethical and a more uh, sustainable and a kinder way. So normally we always destroy the land to produce our food and we wanted to test out what we had been practicing at home. Uh, We wanted to see if that was a commercially viable thing to do. And so we went around, you know, regenerating the soil over there. The soil there had been abandoned for many, many years. You know, people don't have time to go into the garden. So it was just abandoned and it was dry, lifeless. A portion of it had been cultivated But uh, yeah, so we went about creating um, an ecosystem over there. We wanted to establish something where, you know, it was more about what happens when you take care of the land. Like, how does it provide for you when you take care of the land? So that was a model that we wanted to practice and and see how it goes and, and then share that with everyone. And before I ask another question about the actual physical appearance of the place and how big it is, because it is extraordinary for an urban lot, yeah. uh, just can you give me a quick summary of what you did to rebuild the land on the property? So the, the property is a 0.62 acres. It oh, has a yeah, it has a half an acre. It has a home in the in the in the front, and um, in the back, what we've done is we've divided the the farm. So basically, it was divided for food production, for composting, and orchard and animals. So, you know, in the old days, and I was just listening to a farmer in India, and he talked about like farm farms in the old times that they had all the elements they you know they they had orchards they had vegetable production they had uh, animal um that that lived there as well and so we also kind of now i look at it and i'm like oh yeah yeah we we did all of that and we also did all the composting as well and um this model was actually presented to the city some time ago when it was like very very active and we were running the uh, urban school over there as well. So this was 
presented as a way of like something that every city could do because we're, you know, we're always concerned about food accessibility and, you know, the waste problem uh, and all of the carbon footprint of like, you know, hauling stuff away. So this model was created as a, also a way. And, and it was, when we first started out, we didn't really know, you know, how it was going to unfold, you know, in life, you start something Right. And then you see all of these other benefits or not benefits. You know, you come across all kinds of challenges and your vision changes and you kind of keep, you know, seeing what's working and going towards more towards what's working. Right. Mm -hmm. So it had come about that. Yeah. Like a model like ours could be something that could be integrated into the waste management system for the city's, you know, the city's waste management system uh, into the city's park and park and recreation system. Um, so it could be like integrated in a way to where it could serve the community by providing local food and providing a place of education to, you know, get more urban farms on board. I'm just curious with your relationship with community, with the community, were you taking in waste to produce compost for the, for the farm or how was that? What was your relationship there? Yeah, we had one of our community members who worked at a farmer's market and she was bringing in about three to 700 pounds of waste per week. Wow. That was being composted, you know, by, uh, at that point, I think we used to take in about, uh, we had about eight total students. So we had eight students per four-month session. And so, yeah, between uh, between all of them, one day a week, we would, you know, set aside for bringing in all kinds of, all kinds of waste. And unfortunately, that website has been taken down, but uh, we were composting huge amounts of waste. And, and you saw when you walked through the property, there was the middle section, which was not planted. And that was our composting area where we would have at least 10 piles of compost going on there, you know, like all week long. And every week it would, they would get turned and new piles would be made and old piles would be uh, sorted and put put away, you know, like for use at the farm. So we were making all of our own compost that we applied to the beds. And we were also bringing in truckloads of uh, horse bedding from a local horse place. <laughs> Stables. <laughs> horse Stables. place. I love that. You and I clearly do not ride horses. <laughs> I love that. All right. So anyways, so, so yeah, we were bringing in horse bedding from the stables as well. And that was how we were composting all the wet and dry waste. So the layering that needs to be done. Plus we were bringing in lots of uh, wood chips from local tree trimmers. It was a, a tons and tons of waste that we were able to compost in a very small amount of space. And all of that became really great soil or became what you added to the soil to make it fertile and happy and wonderful again. Yeah. Yeah. Our, our, we used to get our soil tested twice a, twice a year and our organic levels were, I think around 13 to 15 or 18% of the soil. And then that's I think in normal is like five. Yeah. Like it's five. four or 5%. So that's pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> 
Nice job. <laughs> so, so you've described the garden a little bit, uh, and you've got fruit trees, you've got row crops, you've got farm animals, and and what what was the oh, and then well, and you've got the nursery. That's the other piece. That's yeah. a big part yeah, of it. Yeah. Yeah. And those are all things that we, you know, we didn't start off with all of that. We built up to all of that. At one point, you know, all of our seedlings uh, were started with organic seed and all of the, all of the um, starts were produced in our nursery. You know, the students got training in working with seeds and with nursery. And then they also had training in the field and in harvesting and in cooking ideas and animal care and orchard care. I would say, though, that my orchard care is where I have still, I feel, not so strong, strong in, especially because I think stone fruit trees are, I feel like, they're princesses in trees. <laughs> they are. They are, especially with the the new swath of pests that are attacking most stone fruit trees these days. It's really hard to keep them going. And yeah, I know yeah. that a lot of people, a lot of arborists that I know are requesting people to switch away from stone fruits and even citrus because of the pests that are attacking them toward the yeah. tropicals and subtropicals, which you happen to be growing in the nursery. So exactly, exactly. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Uh, exactly. And I'm, <clears throat> I'm going to ask you about those crops in a moment. So I have to describe for the people who are listening, I went there recently and they have these this whole section in the back. First of all, the property is really, really long. It's like a double lot. It goes very deep and it is all fruit trees in the back. I counted 24, but you also have more fruit trees lining the perimeter length of the garden. And then the center is the row crops and you've got vining crops along the fence as well, plus bananas and guavas and all kinds of other stuff. And then the row crops are on trellises in the center and then the nursery sits toward the front of the lot. And that's just bursting with seedlings of really interesting crops, which I did talk about a little bit with Rishi, and we're going to talk about it with you in a moment. But first, what, what brought you to gardening? What's your story? <laughs> I think that we all come from agricultural backgrounds. Like in general, I think, you know, we used to live in more agrarian societies, but somehow... Many of us have drifted away from that, you know, the connection has been lost. And I don't know, I feel like it's just inherently in me. Like I, I've always felt so, I feel like the plants are always calling out to me. <laughs> do this to me, do this to me. <laughs> right. That's true. And I, I know that when, when we were walking through the farm together, I was commiserating with you on how like everything you look at you're like oh I need to do that oh I need to do that oh I need to do that <laughs> yes. but when the when the plants are calling to you that is the mission right that's you're supposed yeah, to be, we're yeah. here to take care of them anyway go on exactly you you get my I think you know you're also you know the more you realize like I feel plants are the center of the universe this is what I've started to realize you know all of life dances around plants there is not anything that does not derive its livelihood from plants so plants are really the center of the universe and we are all here to serve the plants and i, I think only that. a gardener can t totally understand that 
um, I think they understand more about life and death than normal people. They understand more about circulation than people who are like not attached to plants. Mm-hmm. They also realize this, the whole, you know, because one of the biggest things is when people say that you're connected to everything, it's a very difficult concept to grasp. What do you mean I'm connected to everything or I'm part of everything? You can only understand that when you start to look at earth as a garden and you are part of that garden. And so is everything else that is on this planet. We are all part of this garden. And we live in this symbiotic relationship with each other. And we're constantly circulating energy, right? So I guess I'm, I love the garden because the garden called me and I listened. Mm-hmm. And I stayed. <laughs> you stayed. You didn't run away. <laughs> I stay and my relationship gets deeper when I stay. I understand more. Like I see more. And and I'm beginning to see that other people that are also very connected in the garden to plants see the same things that I see. Yeah. Your observation (laughs) skills really develop once you start connecting with plants. I found that to be true. And you see that shift in people as the more they garden, the more they get their hands in the soil. They start noticing things that regular people don't see. So yeah, I'm with you on that. I'm going to jump now to your company, Brush with Bamboo, and the zero waste. Well, they're not zero waste. They are recycled. They're compostable toothbrushes, really. They're plant-based toothbrushes. How did that happen? Well, around 2008, you know, there were a lot of documentaries coming out on plastic and uh, we were watching it together, like as a family and we got to realize the problem. And um, my older son, he was the one, you know, we were all taking a look at all the plastic that were around our in our house, like checking our handbags and checking our bedrooms and, you know, checking our kitchen to see like where all (laughs) we have plastic. And my son observed that even the very first thing that he puts in his mouth is plastic. And, you know, uh, it's full of harmful chemicals and we're absorbing these chemicals through our mouth. And so he started to look for an alternative and then he didn't find any. So at that point, he was kind of what am I going to do? You know, like he was in between like looking for a career and he decided that he would develop a plastic free toothbrush. And in his research, he found that in the early history of China, that they actually used bamboo toothbrushes. And we had a friend in China. So we contacted him and we asked him if we could develop a bamboo toothbrush. And he said, yeah, you know, we can work on that. Um, so we, took about, I think, uh, almost a year to develop that very first brush. And uh, that's, you know, that that was a solution that we came up with as a family. You know, it was something that Rohit, uh, my older son, who, you know, who needed a career path. So he found his something, you know, in, in, in a, what he was going to do. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, it just developed just like that. It developed from, I guess, our own need of wanting to be healthy and to have, you know, safe products to use. And since we didn't find it, we decided we were going to create one. Cool. <laughs> so that's, that's how 
that's how it started. That's great. And yeah. I noticed that you sell them on the Sarvo Diet Institute's uh, gift shop site yes. as well. Yes. Yes. Um, I hear, a, is it a chirping in the back of a bird going off in bird. the back? Yeah. Okay. Bird. Yeah. Got, you've got a lot of uh, wildlife in your garden. Yeah. There's, I'm very excited about all the butterflies that are flying around this year. I've been working on creating like butterfly and bee habitats for a while. So the bees were easy to bring in, mm-hmm. but the butterflies have been a little bit more challenging to bring in. And I used to always see one monarch flying around every year. <laughs> um, but this year there's two. Excellent. All right. 100% so increase. Excellent. <laughs> so I'm hoping to actually, I have a visual of a garden that I used to walk into when I was a child. And in India, when I lived in India, you know, some 50 years back, there were a gazillion butterflies always flying around of all kinds. And I haven't seen that scene and I'm trying to recreate it. So. Well, you'll keep us posted on that. It sounds like a good project to tackle. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. So as we mentioned earlier, you have a fantastic nursery there. I'm curious yeah. to know what are your favorite crops, if you can even choose, uh, <laughs> crops or plants that you're growing right now that you love? Well, mangoes are my absolute favorite. Uh, I'm from India, so I'm used to all the exotic fruits. And so I would say, you know, mangoes, sweet limes. I also love, you know, I haven't gotten any of that fruit yet, but I planted lychee. So ever since I found out that, you know, the weather is warming up, um, then I can grow a lot more subtropicals now. So, you know, now we have like at the house, you, you have to see the house too. One of these days we'll have to get together for lunch or something in here. But we have close to like 15 papayas and about seven mangoes and and we keep, Rishi keeps grafting the mangoes with different varieties of scions that we're able to like get our hands on. Uh, and then uh, we're planning to offer like mango trees at the nursery. And I have a whole wish list of trees that I want to grow. Yeah, I, I would say mangoes and lychees and mulberries, those have been like my favorites so far. And those, for those who are not living in a southern region, do you have any sense of how far north, what zone you can grow mangoes in without risk of frost or death? (laughs) (laughs) You know, Christy, what's funny is that I think that the microclimate at my house because it's much more mature and you know like i've integrated a lot more trees at the house so the house is really focused on trees right we have 87 fruit trees here wow um so they're planted at you know eight to ten feet distance so the whole yard has been taken over by trees it's a jungle it's a jungle it literally is when you walk in here you will forget that you're in the suburbs it it won't even it doesn't look like the suburbs uh, at all in here. And um, so the microclimate here is very different now. So I'm able to grow more subtropicals here than I am in Pomona. And so one of my visions for Pomona, the Sarvodia Farms, is to integrate more trees 
and more perennials. So the, the beds that you see right now, my vision is actually to integrate more trees in there so that I can change the microclimate because uh, Pomona does get a lot cooler. So if you're, if you're going to go down to like 30 degrees, you can't grow papayas and mangoes and uh, bananas, sugar cane. That's another one of my favorites. Mm. Uh, but if your lows are like maybe in the 40s, I think you can grow a lot more. Mm-hmm. But if it goes down to 30s, then it's more difficult to grow the, you know, the tropicals. Got even it. the guavas in at Sarvadea, I, I couldn't even grow guavas. So it's funny because the front of the property is warmer than the back of the property. And I think it has to do, you know, with uh, the apartment complexes that are in the back, which creates a cooler microclimate over there. So right, you've got a series of of buildings at the back of the behind of the, the next lot over is all yeah. concrete, asphalt, and buildings. And so interesting. Yeah. That's a cooler temperature cooler. than the front. <laughs> yeah, because it shades it shades the farm more. Got it. Yeah. And so your home is in Diamond Bar, correct? Yes. Yes. And the farm is in Pomona. For those who are not familiar with that, it's still Southern California, but it's uh, Diamond Bar, I guess, is a little bit, well, no, Pomona is closer to the foothills. Uh, well, I guess you get that frost. So you're closer to where you would get some of that behavior from the foothill influence over there. That's where the more drastic temperatures happen, hotter hots and colder colds. Yes. Uh, but Diamond Bar is a little more mid, mid-ish mid Orange yeah. County area, so you don't get that as much. Okay. Yeah. And so, they're 10 minutes apart. That's all. And that's so funny. I mean, microclimates, well, LA is huge, and so is Orange County. It just gets, it's just enormous. But um, anyway, so you have a banana that is named after you. It is called the Pearl Banana, which is the name I met you with. You were introduced to me as Pearl. And I, I'm curious to know where that came about. But uh, tell us about this banana. How does it taste and why is it named for you? Well, it's named after me because there was one of the fir- very first plants that I had put in the ground. And at that time, I wasn't very, like, savvy about saving the names of what I got. (laughs) Um, And so after, you know, many, many years, and it's funny because, you know, the banana has, I've had it for over 30 years, and um, it's evolved from, it was a dwarf banana, and it's evolved in height for sure. I've seen it, you know, at least evolve to maybe four feet taller than it used to be when I first got it. Um, but the bananas are fantastic. They have a saltiness to them that I have not seen in other bananas. So I love the texture and I love the flavor. It's sweet and it's salty. And when you dehydrate it, it makes an amazing little snack. But um, so, yeah, when we started to offer it in our nursery, uh, we needed to name it. And I'm like, okay, this one I'm naming after myself. So <laughs> I, I gave my nickname to it. And my nickname was actually given to me by a friend. He used to call me the Indian Pearl. And so um, everybody started to call me Pearl. And so, and I liked it. It was, it was easy to call, you know, for people who had 
because uh, I encounter, you know, my name is Manju, and it's very difficult for people to say because it's a very unusual name. Mm-hmm. And Pearl was super easy to say. So for a while, I thought, okay, this is much easier. Like, let's just use that name. And so that's how the name came about. And is but, it a dwarf? Is it, it's, so it's not a dwarf banana anymore? It, it is still a dwarf in comparison to other bananas. Okay. So like, how tall does it get? Originally, I would say it's probably probably like maybe nine feet. Okay, that's manageable. And yeah. does it spread as wide as most banana trees do? They get quite a circumference after a while. Not as much as the golden nugget. Okay. The golden nugget is like super fast growing. And if you want abundance and if you love bananas and you want them, you know, like I'll get like two, three bunches coming out of that golden nugget every one at one time. Uh, So that one is really profuse right now. Like I have about two bunches on the pearl. So of course, after years of growing it, it gets more solid, but yeah, the pearl is is a little bit manageable as far as the size. Got it's it. right now it's it's like three by you know three by five area. Okay, that's manageable. Because I want a banana tree, but we don't have room for it. But I'm like, maybe if we did it in a small space. Anyway. Uh, yeah. so I, I want to ask you about something I have heard about how to take care of bananas and make sure that they're fruitful. I have heard that if you keep the trunks that come up, the, the pups to, to, well, the pups of the babies. Um, and I, and what I've heard is that if you manage the tree to just one stock and one pup, then it produces fruit. Is that true? Or what have you, what do you do to make sure that it remains productive and doesn't get too out of hand? I have not found that to be true. Okay. Um, I usually, uh, have more than, I, I think I have like maybe close to six or seven growing at the same time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I found that the more pups you allow to grow, the more bananas you have. <laughs> so okay. uh, that makes sense. <laughs> I've, I've also read about what you were saying, you know, that, you know, you shouldn't allow more than three, but I haven't found that to be true. Okay. Good to know. There are always different theories and I guess maybe it's different depending on where you are growing them, that it might perform better in one way in another location, you know, in a location than another, but okay. Good to know. All right. Well, it is tip time. Do you have a favorite tip that you'd like to share with the garden nerd audience? My favorite tip when you ask me that is to embrace failure. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Because failure is is not a bad thing. It just teaches you what to do next or what not to do next. Never give up and learn from your mistakes because, you know, we're all going through a learning process daily in our lives. We're always learning. We never stop. And so the more comfortable you get with failure uh, and the more you understand why failure is there don't take it personally it's no don't allow your ego to get hurt or come up with excuses like i have a brown thumb Uh, (laughs) yeah (laughs) no it's like you know to me uh that's my one tip embrace failure i just look at plants just like i raise my kids if i can raise my kids i can definitely raise a plant 
they're not different. So that is very true. I often equate plants with children because they're, they're talking, they're telling you what they need. They're just not using English. (laughs) And, uh, and when people plant a plant and then do nothing to it, I'm like, plants are like kids. You have to feed them and give them water and, you know, dress them up every once in a while or else they will die. That is that is what they do. They need that. They have the same needs. So yeah, that's pretty yeah. good. Yeah. 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 Well, thank you for sharing that expert tip, Manju, and for being on the Garden Nerd <laughs> Tip of the Week podcast. Thanks. I enjoyed talking to you. It's always fun to talk to fellow gardeners. Yeah. How do people find you? Well, I am on social media, so I only do Instagram. So I'm Zero Waste Farmer on social media. And I you can also find me uh, at Brush With Bamboo, uh, Manju at Brush With Bamboo. Our website, Sarvodaya Institute. Those are the three ways to connect with me. Okay, great. All right, garden nerds, you'll find a link to the Sarvadea Institute's nursery and gift shop at gardennerd.com this week. We'll also share Manju's social media feeds. That's it for this week. Subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Visit us for tons of free gardening information at gardennerd.com. Show your support for this podcast and the other free stuff on Garden Nerd by becoming a Patreon subscriber. You'll find us on Instagram and Twitter under gardennerd1, on Facebook as gardennerd.com, and of course, our garden nerd youtube channel happy gardening